Today's Friday, July 7th, 2023, and this is 5 at 8. With you today are Linda Carlisle and Mark Overman. In this episode, we will talk about Russia's missile strike on the Ukrainian city of Lviv, the potential rejoining of the UK to the EU's Horizon Science Research Program, the challenges faced by the US corn industry, the rollout of the world's first malaria vaccine in African countries, and the concerns over China's heavy reliance on property sales for economic growth. Stay tuned for all the latest news of the day. Story number one. Russia has launched a missile strike on the Ukrainian city of Lviv, killing at least seven people and causing significant damage to a residential building. This attack is believed to be the heaviest on civilian areas of the city since the start of the Russia-Ukraine war. The nighttime onslaught destroyed the roof and top two floors of the building, injuring nine people. The U.S. ambassador to Ukraine condemned the attack, describing Russia's repeated attacks on civilians as horrifying. According to The Guardian, Lviv is located far from the front lines of the war in eastern and southern Ukraine. Ukrainian authorities reported intercepting seven of the ten missiles fired by Russia. The president of Ukraine has promised a tangible response to the attack. Lviv, which served as a transit point for refugees during the early days of the war, has experienced power outages due to previous missile attacks. The recent strike has shocked residents of the city. I gotta tell you, Linda, this missile attack on Lviv hits hard. It's a terrible reminder that in conflicts like these, it's often the civilians far from the front lines that bear the brunt of the damage. You know, it's not just about the immediate devastation, the loss of life, the destruction of homes, but the long-term psychological and social impacts that these attacks can have on a community. And it's such a stark reminder of the ripple effects of warfare. Lviv was once a safe haven for refugees, a transit point for people fleeing to Europe. Now it's under attack itself. The people who thought they had found relative safety are now faced with violence yet again. It's a cycle that's heartbreakingly familiar in conflict zones around the world. Yeah, and, you know, it's not just about the physical damage, but also the societal fabric that gets torn apart. The basic trust in safety, the sense of community, the feeling of home, all that gets shattered. It's going to take a lot more than just rebuilding structures to heal these wounds. And it's critical to remember that each attack on civilians like this is a violation of international law. The principle of distinction in warfare is clear. Parties to a conflict must distinguish between combatants and civilians, and attacks must not be directed against civilians. Yet we see this principle being breached time and again. Right, Linda. And that's where the international community needs to step in, condemn these atrocities, and hold the perpetrators accountable. It's not just about stopping the violence, but also about setting a precedent. If we let these attacks on civilians go unchecked, it sends a dangerous message to conflict parties worldwide. And it's not just about accountability, but also about prevention. The international community needs to work on strategies to prevent such attacks from happening in the first place. This includes diplomatic efforts to resolve conflicts and technological solutions to protect civilians and infrastructure from attacks, It's a complex challenge, but one that we cannot afford to ignore. Story number two. Scientists in the UK have reacted with a mix of caution, anger, and relief to the news that the country may rejoin the EU's Horizon Science Research Program, as reported by The Guardian. An announcement is expected in the coming days, potentially during a meeting between UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. 
Physicist Brian Cox described rejoining as a huge relief, while others expressed anger at the UK government's stance on funding. Some scientists warned that the damage caused by Brexit would take time to repair, but overall there was optimism about rebuilding scientific relationships with Europe. Negotiations between the EU and the UK have focused on the financial formula for the country's return to the program. Is it just me, Linda, or does this whole situation feel like a roller coaster ride? One minute we're out, the next we're in, and then we're sidelined again. This reintegration of the UK into the EU's Horizon Europe program seems to be coming as a huge relief to the scientific community there. It's a fascinating example of how politics can directly influence the course of scientific research, isn't it? It's a complex interplay, and it can be quite frustrating for the scientific community who often have to bear the brunt of these political decisions. In this case, the UK's withdrawal from the Horizon program due to Brexit had real-world impacts on ongoing scientific initiatives. Prominent scientists and researchers were very vocal about their discontent. And it's not just about the funding that got pulled out. It's the collaborations, the shared knowledge and resources, and the opportunity to work on groundbreaking projects that really took a hit. But then again, this isn't the first time we've seen politics and science clash, right? History is littered with examples. Look at the space race during the Cold War. It was highly political, yet it led to incredible scientific advancements. However, what's crucial here is finding a balance. The pursuit of scientific advancement should not be hampered by political interest to this extent. Couldn't agree more, Linda. Now, there's this concern that even if the UK does return to the Horizon program, they could still be on the sidelines, not having a seat at the table when key themes and priorities are being set. It's a bit like being invited to the party but not being allowed to dance, isn't it? Quite an apt analogy, Mark. It's a valid concern, and one that could potentially limit the UK's influence in shaping the future of European scientific research. The damage, as some scientists have pointed out, may take time to repair. But it's also important to remember that despite these challenges, the scientific community has shown remarkable resilience and adaptability. Even in the face of political turbulence, the pursuit of knowledge continues. Right you are, Linda. It's that spirit of resilience and the relentless pursuit of knowledge that keeps the wheels of scientific progress moving no matter what. Now let's just hope that this potential reintegration happens smoothly and we see a more harmonious relationship between science and politics moving forward. Story number three. The BBC reports that the United States, the world's largest corn exporter, is facing challenges that may lead to its loss of dominance in the market. Rising costs of machinery, seeds, and farmland, coupled with a decrease in the number of acres planted and a drought in the Western Plains, have impacted U.S. corn production. China, the biggest importer of corn, has been canceling orders from the U.S. in favor of cheaper alternatives. Mexico is also shifting away from genetically modified U.S. corn. Brazil, with its ability to harvest two crops of corn a year, is poised to become a dominant player in corn production and has been increasing its exports to China. The move by China to diversify its food imports is driven by price advantages and tensions with the U.S. Inflation has also contributed to high corn prices in the U.S. While Brazil's rise may not have a major impact on the U.S. economy, American farmers are exploring new markets, such as Indonesia's potential for ethanol production. Do you know, Linda, this news about America's corn exports taking a hit really got me thinking. Now don't get me wrong, I'm all for a global market, 
but it's a bit alarming to see our long-held position as the world's top corn exporter being threatened. I hear you, Mark. The situation is indeed concerning. It's not just about the economic implications, but also the potential impact on our food security. The rising costs of machinery, seeds, and farmland are putting a lot of pressure on our farmers. And these factors aren't just impacting our yield, but also our competitiveness. With China moving to cheaper alternatives like South African and Brazilian corn, it's a wake-up call for us to reassess our strategies. True, Mark. But it also highlights the changing dynamics of global agricultural trade. China's shift isn't just about cost, it's also a strategic move to diversify their food imports, especially given the current geopolitical tensions. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there, Linda. It's a smart move on China's part. Diversifying to mitigate risks. But it's Brazil that's really caught my eye. Their ability to harvest two crops of corn a year is a game-changer, and it seems they're capitalizing on it well. Indeed, Brazil's rise is noteworthy. It's a classic case of how changing environmental and economic conditions can shift power dynamics. But let's not forget, while this shift could benefit some, it could also lead to instability in the global food supply chain. You're right on the money there, Linda. As much as we're in a competitive market, it's crucial to remember that when it comes to food, we're all in this together. And hey, it's not all doom and gloom for us. Farmers like Scott Hare are ready to adapt and are looking for new markets like Indonesia. That's a positive outlook, Mark. And it's a testament to the resilience of our farmers. It's a reminder that in the face of challenges, there's room for innovation and adaptation. It will be interesting to see how this situation evolves. Story number four. The Guardian reports that the world's first malaria vaccine, RTS, S-AS01, will be rolled out in 12 African countries over the next two years. The vaccine has been declared safe and effective in reducing deaths and severe illness among children. An initial 18 million doses will be delivered to the countries with the highest risk of malaria. Another 16 African countries have requested access to the vaccine. The vaccine, produced by GlaxoSmithKline and expected to involve the Indian company Bharat Biotech in supply, is expected to save tens of thousands of lives and combat a disease that kills nearly half a million children in Africa each year. It's truly a milestone, Linda, this malaria vaccine rollout in 12 African countries. We're talking about a disease that claims nearly half a million children's lives every year, and now we have a vaccine declared safe and effective. It's a testament to the power of science and innovation. It's transformative, not just for the individual lives saved, but also for the communities affected. Malaria has a significant social and economic impact. Illness leads to missed school days for children and lost productivity for adults. So this vaccine has the potential to trigger a ripple effect of positive changes. I couldn't agree more, Linda. It's exciting to think about the potential knock-on effects. I mean, we saw it with the eradication of smallpox. It revolutionized global health. This could be another turning point. Plus, think about the role of international cooperation here. You've got Gavi, WHO, UNICEF, all working together to ensure equitable access. That's an important point, Mark. It's not just about the scientific breakthrough, but also how it's implemented. The equitable distribution of vaccines has been a pressing issue, as we've seen with COVID-19. Ensuring that every child at risk has access to this malaria vaccine is a major challenge, but also an opportunity to set a new precedent in global health. Right you are, Linda. 
It's a chance to show that we've learned from past struggles and can do better. And it's not just a one-company game, you know. GlaxoSmithKline is producing this vaccine, but Bharat Biotech in India will also contribute. A global effort to solve a global problem. Now that's what I call progress. It's a multifaceted approach that's needed here. From the research and development of the vaccine, to the production and distribution, and even to the education and acceptance of the vaccine by local communities. It's a complex task, but one that underscores the interconnectedness of our world. This vaccine isn't just a triumph for science, it's a triumph for humanity. Story number five. China's heavy reliance on property sales to drive economic growth is causing concerns among economists. According to the BBC, while crowded outdoor barbecue spots and a property boom may seem like signs of a rebounding economy, experts argue that these are actually indications of people opting for affordable options amid financial pressure. The real estate sector is under stress, with housing estates being built but remaining largely unoccupied. The oversupply of homes and the unaffordability of properties for ordinary families in big cities have raised concerns about a potential property bubble. The Chinese government is grappling with the challenge of diversifying the economy away from its dependence on property sales to stimulate growth and business confidence. Rebalancing the economy and promoting household spending and business investment are seen as crucial, but the current climate of economic insecurity is hindering progress. The Chinese government is considering various measures, such as interest rate cuts and cash handouts, to stimulate spending. However, the dilemma lies in whether to pursue short-term stimulus or endure short-term pain for long-term solutions. The outcome of China's economic challenges will have global implications, affecting manufacturing, exports, and consumption worldwide. Despite the uncertainties, Tourism along China's famous coastline is showing signs of recovery, offering a glimmer of optimism for the future. Why this situation in China really reminds me of what we saw here in the U.S. back in the mid-2000s, doesn't it? The housing bubble was a result of excessive risk-taking by banks, combined with the bursting of the United States housing bubble culminated in the 2008 financial crisis. And now... With China's heavy reliance on property sales to generate growth and business confidence, it seems like they're on a similar path. The excessive development of housing estates with few residents, it's eerily similar. And it's worth noting that the implications are not just for China's domestic economy, but for the global economy as well. China is the world's second largest economy, and what happens there can have a ripple effect elsewhere. We've already seen how reduced manufacturing in China has resulted in fewer exports and fewer Chinese-made goods available worldwide. That's a significant impact on global trade. And let's not forget about the social implications. For ordinary Chinese citizens, their household's largest single investment is, in many cases, no longer worth what they thought it would be. That's a blow to their economic security, and it's likely to make people even more reluctant to spend which, of course, is the opposite of what China's economy needs right now. A lack of consumer confidence could further stifle economic growth. And then there's the issue of youth unemployment. With rates hovering at or above 20%, many recent graduates are finding it hard to find a job. That's another layer of economic insecurity that could have long-term implications for China's economy. Right. It's like a domino effect. One economic problem leads to another and another. But at the end of the day, the question is, what can China do to break this cycle? I mean, they have to find a way to rebalance their economy. But as the article points out, that could involve some short-term pain. 
Yes, it's a delicate balancing act. On one hand, the Chinese government could choose to stimulate the economy in the short term, which might help to boost consumer confidence and get people spending again. But on the other hand, such a move could simply delay the inevitable, leaving China to face the same problems further down the line. The key will be finding sustainable solutions that can address the root causes of these issues. Well, if there's one thing we learned from the U.S. housing crisis, it's that there are no easy fixes. It took years for our economy to recover. But hey, on a positive note, the article does mention that tourism along Qingdao's coastline seems to be picking up. So maybe there's a silver lining after all. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.